Well, welcome everybody. Laura has graciously agreed over the years to donate her time to come here and share with us. I guess, Laura, this is four, five, six times you've been here. I can't remember. But she's going to talk about boundaries uh, and family agreements, family support for each member of the family and the recovery journey, journal, journey. But let me tell you a little bit about her. She's very credentialed. She had joined Foundations Recovery Network in April of 2012. She brought two decades of experience working in social work with her when she came. During the last nine years, she's overseen the outpatient program at Family uh, Foundations Recovery Network. And uh, she's gotten her, she's originally from Ontario, Canada, came to United, Toronto, came to the United States, graduated the University of Georgia, went to Georgia State, got her postgraduate degree. She used to work at St. Jude's Recovery Center for 14 years, spending a lot of time there. She has a passion working with alumni of the treatment program that she's in. She specializes in alumni groups in cognitive behavior therapy skills. She has extensive experience in direct services, leadership, supervision. She has obtained her certified professional clinical supervisor. She has all kinds of letters alphabet after her name. So <laughs> trust me, she's very credentialed. So Laura, I'm going to pray for you, then I'm going to welcome you to the podium. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for Laura God and the passion that she has for helping individuals that are struggling and their families, Lord. And tonight we just pray that you will speak through in a mighty way so that we, we will leave here encouraged and hopeful with nuggets of wisdom, Father. We just pray that her words will be your words. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thank you guys for coming tonight. Um, I really want to talk about boundaries because I do a lot of work with our alumni, as John was talking about, but I also do all of our assessments. And when I'm doing assessments, I'm also meeting with the family members who come in with their adult children. And what I see is one of the biggest problems is the lack of boundaries or the inability to maintain the boundaries or having extreme boundaries. It's all over the place, but it's not working. And so there's a huge disconnect. And there's when I'm meeting with both the patient and the family member, it, it, there's a lot of clashing. And so to help with that, I think it's really important to look at what boundaries are, how you can set appropriate boundaries, and then at the end, I'm going to go over what's called a family agreement. This family agreement is a fluid document, and I will give you copies of everything that I'm going to show you tonight um, so that you can create your own family agreements. You don't have to have family members in recovery or family members who are struggling with addiction to do a family agreement. I think family agreements are great for all family members. For any family, it's a healthy way to establish boundaries and making sure that everyone is working together for the same goal. Okay? All right. So, the purpose of a boundary um, boundaries, like uh, Fair was saying, they set limits to protect safety, ensure privacy, or define trusted connections. The family group has a boundary, and each individual has their own personal boundary. And the three main boundaries are loose boundary, closed boundary, and flexible boundary. Okay? The loose boundary, that enables chaos or high risk. And with, when you're looking at the family system, um, people come and go randomly. If you're looking at the individual, it may mean that substances enter the body or random sexual partners are welcome. Those are just some examples. But very loose, no boundaries whatsoever. Okay? Um, when you think about what a boundary is, we have a physical boundary, right? And so when someone approaches you, what is your typical physical boundary? How far do you want them to be away from you? 
at least your arm's length, right? And we've all met those people who you walk back, and what do they do? They keep coming forward. And then you move back again to the point where you're at the wall, and you can't. And so then you start scooting this way, and you start scooting this way, because they have no, no idea of what a personal boundary is. So imagine how they are at home with actual emotional boundaries, okay? So we want to really make sure that we're not having a loose boundary. I see a lot of that with, with families where they can do whatever they want. I'm not going to set anything. And then they get confused as to why, why is my child doing this? Why are they doing that? Well, the boundary isn't set. Boundaries also help make us feel safe. Just like a home. You all live in, 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 in homes that are solid, right? You have windows that are intact. You have front doors. That sets a boundary so that nobody can come in. Some of us go, go up and elevate that and have an alarm system, right? That's an additional boundary to keep that home safe. But the doors open. The windows open. The alarm system can be deactivated. So that moves us into what is at the bottom is the flexible boundary, where there is open openness, there is honesty, there is the availability to come in and out, but there are still boundaries. Those walls don't come down, okay? So when we look at the flexible boundary, it enables protection and openness. For the family, members love their group. Clear rules are enforced so that there is security and there are strong relationships with the community. For an individual, this person has privacy as well as safe, open, intimate relationships with family, friends, and professional helpers. Okay. Does that make sense, what I'm talking about so far? Okay. And when you have a closed boundary, this is where it's very stifling. And you're going to see a lot of times when you have very closed boundaries, people are just trying to get out of the family because there is no room for growth, okay? So when you have a closed boundary, it enables over-control. So that's where we're talking about where I'm monitoring you 24-7. You have to check in. All of this, you can't live like that. It's a lot of work on both parts, and it's very stifling for that person, okay? Um, for the family, that may mean powerful secrets, domestic violence, child abuse, no helpers or friends are allowed access. For the individual, that may mean no choices, silence, or isolation. So the medium one, the middle one, is the flexible, and that's where we want to go. Okay? Stop me if you have questions. Raise your hand. I, am, I love to interact with everybody. So the goal of the boundary is that all family members feel safe, that you feel supported, and that you feel heard. Safe, supported, and heard, okay? Those are three key ingredients. If you don't feel safe in your home, in your relationships, if you don't feel supported, if you don't feel heard, when you feel heard, that means you feel valued, okay? That your input, your presence means something. When you feel support, that means I have communication and they know how to support me and I know how to support them. When I'm down, they can be there. And when they're down, I can be there for them. Safe, that no one's going to harm me. 
No one's going to harm me physically. No one's going to harm me emotionally. And no one's going to harm me sexually. Okay? So the main ingredient in healthy boundaries and healthy relationships is open and honest communication. And that can be hard. Because a lot of times we don't want to have that open and honest communication because if we do that, I might hurt them. And I hear a lot of family members saying, well, I don't want to say certain things because that could cause them to relapse. I've said it in this, in this room before, but you are not that powerful. Okay? You cannot cause someone to relapse. Your words may trigger emotions for them, but you can't cause someone to relapse. What I tell patients that we talk about triggers being people, places, and things, but it's not the actual people, it's not the actual things, it's not the actual places, it's our emotional reaction to those people, places, and things. So know that you are not that powerful so that when you confront something, when you say something, when you set a boundary, you are not causing a person to relapse. You are setting a safe area, okay? And if you, I want you to think back to small kids. They push and they push, don't they? I mean, re- think back to when you had really small kids, four and five. They push the limits because they want to see, are you really going to be there? It's the same thing. We do it as adults. We want to push to see, are you really going to stay? Are you going to be a constant? Are you going to be there? Are you going to be safe? Are you going to hear me? Are you going to support me? So this can be a very daunting task for some families as their family culture has been one with more closed boundaries when it comes to addressing family problems. This is not something we talk about. I heard that a lot. Um, That doesn't happen in our family. Yes, it does. Okay. Making sure that we can change that culture. Just because that was the way that your family has been raised doesn't mean that that's the family that we're going to continue to have. And I see a lot of patients and family members struggle to identify their emotions, to be able to express their emotions. That's important. If you can't tell your child or your, your spouse or anyone else how you feel, then you're closed off and you have a very closed boundary. But then there becomes the assumption that they should know how I feel. They don't teach mind reading. I mean, we can guess. They certainly didn't teach it in school where I went. I mean, we can't, we, you can't wait for someone to guess how you feel or guess what it is that you want. You need to say it. Laura, I grew up in a family where emotions were kind of booted off the island. Mm-hmm. We're not allowed to express especially deep emotions. Right. Was, is that a cultural thing, or do you see that a lot? See that a lot. Um, and it can come... From in terms of regional, uh, it can come in. It, I've seen it in a variety of different ways. Um, you know, I've even with people from different countries, I've seen where you know that's just not the way we do things. Um, and so that's the the job that you have is to begin to change that for your family. And it's scary because you don't know how to do it because you didn't see it. I mean, that's how we learn. We learn our boundaries. We learn, we learn how to express our emotions by watching our parents, by watching those in our families. So if we don't see that, how do you know when someone's angry? Is it because they hit? 
Is it because they yell? How do you know when they're sad? How do you know when they're upset? How do you know when they're scared? For a lot of people, they never saw that with parents. And so that's the part that we have to begin to change, and I hope that you're able to do that. Yeah, that's a great question. So the other piece is secrets will keep us sick. I mean, we say that all the time in treatment, but it's true no matter where you go. It doesn't have to be in treatment. If we keep secrets, they keep us sick. Okay? So family secrets are not going to be helpful. And every family has issues. Every family has problems. No family is perfect. I've yet to meet one. I'll be interested to meet one if I ever come across that. But everyone has problems. Everyone has emotions. Everyone is struggling at different levels, at different times, and it's going to look a little bit different. Okay? I think we have to get past the idea of embarrassment and shame when we're dealing, especially when we're dealing with recovery and addiction. Okay? To be able to talk about it. Because I know for our patients, once they acknowledge to someone else that they're in recovery. I mean, I recently had an alumnus um, was traveling out of the country by themselves, and there was a gathering, and person happened to mention, oh, I don't drink. And this other person said, me too, are you? And they're like, yes, I am. Me too, I'm, I'm, I'm working on my 12th step. And so then there was that connection. And then they had a safe you know, a feeling of safety with, you know, and they were out of the country and they had someone there that they could talk to. But they were being vulnerable and allowed that. And so that's what I encourage you to do as well. So the family agreement, it's a helpful tool that we can use to really establish clear boundaries, okay? Um, clear boundaries that are flexible and that are going to be developed together. You don't get to develop the family agreement by yourself, okay? It has to be all members of the family, everyone who lives in the home, everyone comes together and creates this document. And everyone should have input. Now, is everyone going to get their way? No. But everyone's going to have input, and we're going to work on this together. And I love doing this with mom and dad and the child, or even with spouses. That's been an interesting one, doing this with husband and wife and coming up with you know consequences positive and negative and these kind of behaviors what we're going to do what we're not going to do and setting those boundaries but it's really important when you're dealing with the family and a reminder that this is a living and breathing document we change right we get older things change so there should be additions and and edits to this document as things happen so as people progress in their recovery, as you progress in your own recovery, there's going to be some edits. You may not have to have the same consequences. Okay? Um, and by using the family agreement, it's going to lay out the rules and consequences, positive and negative, in a very clear and concise manner. It helps everyone to have ownership of, and accountability, and it is not a substitute for the covenant of a loving relationship. Okay? There should be no double standards, and all parties must see how the contract helps each member 
know how they are part of the recovery narrative. This is a tool and not a weapon. Any questions about that so far? No? Is this, this is for assuming your product or whatever mm -hmm. Doesn't have to be. Okay, okay. It can be. They can be away. I've done this when there's prodigal. The, the child is living in separate living, or you know, at, at in their own home, and then there's interaction at the home, or there could be waiting for the transition for that person to come home. That's why the, the great thing about this document is you can add as much as you want to. Okay. So how many of you have difficulty with follow-through on your boundaries? Be honest. We all do. Come on, everyone raise your hand. You know you do. It's hard. And especially when it's your kid. I think that's the hardest part. Well, I'm going to kick them out if they do this. Okay. And then they do this, so well, I can't do that. <laughs> they might die. If they have to live in their car, they might die. I don't think that living in their car is going to cause them to die. And they're pretty creative. And they typically find ways to take care of themselves, right? But there's that parental tug that says, I, uh, I can't. I, I just, what, what if this happens? What if that happens? So when you're doing, setting boundaries, you have to have boundaries that you're willing to enforce and be reasonable. Don't come up with boundaries that you know that you're never going to enforce. You know, that's the worst thing because all you're doing is teaching your child, whether they're a young adult or an older adult, you're teaching them that boundaries don't matter. Your word doesn't matter. And especially for young adults who haven't yet gone out into the working world, they need to know. There are consequences. When there are specific boundaries set and you violate them, you'll lose your job. You'd be amazed at the folks that they, could, they come back. I can't believe they fired me because I did the. But these were the, the rules. You're supposed to be there at 8.30 every morning. You can't just wander in at 9 because you, you, know, you forgot or your phone didn't go off. I mean, come on. Your phone, I, I know I can set at least 10 alarms if I need to, if, that's, if it's that important. Because I know if I have a trip and I have to get up early at like 4 in the morning, I'll set several alarms. I'll even have Alexa make sure I get up. I might even have someone call me because it's important to me. Okay, but we need to teach boundaries are important. And that your boundaries are important so that they will respect your boundaries and that you will respect theirs. Okay, But there has to be follow-through. So don't ever, when you're making any kind of family agreement, setting up boundaries, please don't ever come up with a boundary that you're not willing to follow. Like I'll, com I'll completely cut them off financially. Are you really ready to do that? Because when you go back and say, well, I'll pay for their phone, or I'll give them some money for a hotel room, or I'll do this, I'll, you know, it was just a little bit. That's violating the boundary. What does that say about your word? Okay. Yeah. And that I don't need to change. 
I don't need to. I mean, if you're going to keep paying and buying me a new car every time I trash it, especially if you're going to buy me another BMW, yeah. If you're going to keep paying for my rent, if you're going to be paying for my iPhone, I love it when I tell parents, well, get them a flip phone. Oh, I can't have that. <laughs> yes, they can. They can figure it out. They can figure out a flip phone. You're, all they really need is to be able to call for an emergency, right? They don't need to be on there on Snapchat or TikTok or whatever. They don't need to be doing that. If that's what they want, then they can afford it. Get a job, right? Right? So be aware of that. Be aware of the, you know, I can't do this because of this. And the boundaries that you want to set in terms of if they're transitioning home or if they're currently in the home or if it's about them visiting the home. Okay? Especially if you have younger children in the home or there are grandchildren that some of you may be taking care of your grandchildren. I don't know that. I'm, not, I'm just going to put that out there that there are people doing that now. And then the parent, the biological parent, wants to come back in. Well, there needs to be some appropriate boundaries as to, you know, the interaction because you're now the legal guardian of these kids. You're taking care of them. You're raising them. Okay? And it's also your home. If they're going to come and stay at your home, whether it's for a visit or whether they're staying there for a period of time or permanently, there should be a set of guidelines and a set of rules. How many of you have had your children in sober living? No? Do you all know what sober living is? Yes? Tell me what sober living is. It's um, uh, like a rehab place where they go and um, they um, uh, get what they need to hopefully, they get the education and the help they need to um, get clean. Okay. So for the majority of the time, sober livings are safe, sober housing that is provided and that they pay for, okay? And a lot of times it's the parents that are paying for it. And it's where they are living with other sober individuals. They have monitoring. They're drug screened. They have um, sometimes they called RAs, resident assistants, resident counselors that come in and do room checks. They check on them. They have community meetings. And then some of them may be attached to a treatment center. And then some of them, like the ones that we partner with, they send them to us and we provide the treatment. And then we send them back there to live. And so that's where they're staying. And it's temporary. It's not permanent housing. Okay. But while they're there, the great thing about sober livings is they are expected to be doing something. When you talk about a very clear but flexible boundary, they are expected to either be in treatment, they are expected to be working in school or volunteering. You cannot be sitting there all day playing video games and then, you know, watching TV and then going to bed. They get room checks. If they leave stuff in the sink, even a plate, that's a violation. They need to keep their area tidy they need to make their bed. They need to clean. So those are all daily living skills that they learn, which is great. But those are appropriate boundaries. So if you've got a child that's living in sober living and then they're coming back home, incorporate those things too. 
That should be part of the agreement, okay? You have to do chores in your own home, right? Yeah, so if they're going to stay there, then they should be a part of that, okay? So, like I said, the worst part of the contract is if it's not followed. So if you have no intention of following through either way, with positive or negative, then the contract is useless. Don't make it. And it's harmful. I don't know how many people I see that say, well, I'm not, there's no need for me to change because they're going to continue to pay. And I've even had a parent drive them down to the bluff, for those of you who know where the bluff is, to go get some more heroin because they didn't want to put a boundary in place and say, I can't have you in the home doing this. You either need to go to treatment or you have to, you have to leave. And so they drove them down there, putting themselves at risk and putting their child at risk. And these days, we don't even know what that stuff is anymore. They say it's heroin. Most of the time, it's fentanyl. And who knows what else is in there, okay? So be aware of boundaries and be aware of what you are doing that is dangerous and harmful when you're not setting those boundaries. When a contract is signed and then tucked away, never to be looked at again, it teaches them that the world does not honor contracts, doesn't hand out consequences, and they're, they're, the failure to live up to a contract is unnecessary. And you're going to see that in poor work performance going forward in their lives. They'll just get job after job after job. I just don't show up. So when I gather someone's history and I ask about job experiences, how many jobs have you had in the past five years? Well, that takes a long time for me to have to type all that in. Why did you lose this job? Or why did you? I just didn't show up. Or it was just, you know, they wanted me to work too many hours. This was, it was, you know, they wanted me to get up early. Yeah, you kind of have to do those things when you're you're making a living, right? There are things that I have to, would I like to sleep in and go to work at 10 o'clock? Sure. It's not the way the world works. Keeping it simple. Keep it on target and specific. Okay? Addressing the root cause of the concern. Don't bring in all this other stuff from the past. You want to maintain this is what we're talking about. Okay? This is the root problem, and we're not going to go and address issues with grandma. We're not going to address issues over here. We're going to stay in this specific area. Oops. Humility. This one's a hard one. Humility is a beautiful thing, and parents need to take note that the expectation in a contract is that you are modeling behaviors that you want your child to emulate. So when you're asking for open, honest communication, the expectation is it goes both ways. When you're asking for honesty, the expectation is it goes both ways. Okay? When you're asking someone who's in early recovery to not use substances, and yet you are using substances in the home in front of them, what is that saying? What do you think that says to that person? Shout it out. What do you think it means? What does it say? That it doesn't pertain to you. you know, that it, it's only pertains to them. Right. 
And I'm a horrible person because this is what I've had to go through. But it's, you can use it, and it's okay for you. Dad's different. Mom's different. It's hard to ask someone to change if you're also not willing to change. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's going to have to be some compromises. There's going to have to be some behavioral changes, especially if they're living in your home. Okay? And if they're not living in your home and they're coming to visit, then there may be some changes for when they do come to visit. That alcohol is not available. It's not out. Be respectful. You know, that's hard to see that kind of stuff out. Think about it if you're on a diet and you come over to my house and I have a beautiful chocolate cake sitting out. Or I have bread pudding sitting there, which is really rich. And then over here I may have a little bowl of fruit. And it's, you know, it's, it's a couple days old. It's been sitting out. That's, you know, that's not respectful, right? So I'm just asking you to think about what that looks like for them. Okay? Being reasonable. Make the consequences fit the behavior. You've, all, you've heard make the consequences fit the crime, right? I didn't want to use the word crime because this is not about crime. It's about behavior. You don't want to overpunish, and you also don't want to over-reward. Okay? Please do not pay your kids to come to treatment. Don't be shocked. I've had many parents do that. Paid them by the hour. So if they were in treatment with us for six hours a day, they got paid per hour for six hours. Now, where do you think their motivation is to, to make changes? None is when that paycheck stops, right? The wrong person is going to treatment. Yeah, yeah. And that person's typically not coming to family group either to make any changes. Yeah. Okay. Um, just because they finish treatment doesn't mean that they get a brand new car. Okay. It doesn't mean that you're going to buy them a house. It, you know, let's be reasonable about what the rewards are. And then the punishment as well. The, the negative consequences, the things that you take away, make sure it fits, okay? And if you're unsure, trust your gut. Your gut's going to tell you if it's right. Talk to somebody else. But your gut typically is a great monitor. We think too much up here, and we go round and round, and then we will rationalize, okay? So go with your gut. And if you're unsure, talk with your family therapist. Talk with your minister. Talk with whoever you feel comfortable talking with. Talk it over with another parent from this group. What do you think about this? Have a second opinion. That's all right. But just be reasonable, okay? Don't expect perfection because none of us are perfect. We're going to make mistakes, but that's why we have positive and negative consequences, okay? So I wanted to go over the family agreement. Does anyone have any questions about that so far? Y'all are the, the quietest group we've ever had. So um, my daughter, um, 28-year-old daughter, um, 
her and my two-year-old grandson were living with me. And so when I finally got to the point where we s did set the boundaries, so they left. And she had been in these, she had previously been in these places um, similar to the sober living, like rehab places. Mm -hmm. and, you know, she got kicked out of a couple of them because she wasn't keeping the rules, you know. And so, I mean, so finally, you know, I know that previously, like most of her early life, I was guilty of um, enabling her. So, but now she, and at one point, I didn't even know where she or my grandson was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um but now I do, I mean, I haven't been there, don't want to go there, but, you know, they're living, like, in the basement of her, the boyfriend's house. Okay. And so, um, so her bedroom was down in the basement, and the boyfriend kept going down there, and that wasn't, that wasn't okay with us, and that was one of the boundaries, mm -hmm. and so it, that's what caused her to leave, you know, one of the things that caused her to leave. And so now, um, now she's pregnant with another child, and she is sober now Good. because of all of that, and she's coming back, and we're on, um, you know, better communication, and she's letting me see my grandson. At, at, at one point, she didn't let me see him. Right. So it's just now starting a, um, a you know, a, a recommunicating. But how does, like, she left to show me that she didn't have to set any boundaries. Mm -hmm. so, like, like, how does a contract or boundaries fit into that type of situation now that it's gotten to this point? I mean, I mean, she's not living in her, our household, right. so she doesn't have to do anything that we say, but... And she just now started coming back to the house, so there hasn't even been enough time for any kind of new boundaries if that's what needs to be. So um, I'm just what, like, what do you do with a situation like that? Well, I think, you know, first of all, I'm glad that she's sober, and I'm glad that you guys have reconnected, and it's going to be rocky. I'm just going to mm -hmm. be transparent. It's going to be a rocky start. But she's come back. Yes, it's definitely better. Yeah. It's just, I, I guess I'm just battling mm -hmm. with that, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to you know, trust God and everything, but I'm just like, what am I going to do if, you know, like she's uh, relapsed several times over many years. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, and now there's, there's small children involved, so like, uh, you know, ball drops again how what am I going to do how how am I going to handle that okay but, and I know it's out of my control it's just I, I'm just not sure how mm -hmm. like a like a contract would so with the with this kind of contract it allows her to have a voice in it mm -hmm. okay and the two of you sit down and you work out it you work out the contract together and you identify the the, the consequences for both positive and negative the expected behaviors of both and that these are the things that will happen as a result and one of those things may be you know if she was to relapse again and her children were put in jeopardy 
then the action would be that you call defects and file a report and say, my grandchildren are in, in a situation that is not safe. Mm -hmm. That would be the consequence. Let's say defects actually did get involved, and, and then they were not cooperative with us, you know, so we, we actually had problems with, like it was like, the, our, our only choice was like, get a lawyer, we couldn't mm -hmm. afford a, a lawyer, and then now that the relationship is better, if we hadn't done that, that the relationship might not be where it is now, you know, um, it might have, um, so it's just, it's, it's just very hard to figure out. It is a difficult situation to navigate, but I think when you have it on paper and she feels that she has a voice in this and that there's a desire to be a part of a relationship and a part of the family, then there is some level of internal motivation for her because she's not getting finances and other things from you. It's about reconnecting with mom and ensuring that her children have a connection with grandma. It's really about the delivery and the way that you put this out. It's not about, all right, here's a contract. This is what you got to do. This is what I'm willing to do. You need to sign this. That's not the way it works. Let's sit down and talk about how we can create a good relationship between the two of us with appropriate boundaries and things that you both agree on and are willing to follow through with. Yeah. But I'll go over a sample to kind of give you an idea. And again, you, you enter in what you need to, and a lot of times working with a therapist, having that third party, creating that with the two people is really helpful. Any other questions? Nope. Okay. So this is one that I have actually edited. Um, it was one that I did uh, for a family and so I made some changes so that nobody knows who it is and created it so that it fit this program here. Um, so boundaries in the family agreement and you would want to put the family members names. Everyone that's participating. Okay. Now obviously a five-year-old is not going to be participating but those that, you know, teenagers, they'll be participating. Okay. So I, which would be the identified patient or the child, adult child, so in this case your daughter, um, will set forth the following boundaries for myself. And this is where they're going to list the behaviors that they're agreeing to do, okay, um, in order to demonstrate respect for themselves, respect for the family members, um, and the home that they're residing in or visiting, okay. Um, it's very important that the behaviors listed on here are ones that can actually be accomplished, not dreams, but reality, okay? Um, so, it, for example, I agree not to drink any alcoholic beverage, beer, wine, liquor, while abiding by the following contract. I agree not to stash any alcohol in the home or anywhere else. You can translate that to any kind of substance you want, you know, whatever it may be. I agree to come... Uh, to my mom if I'm having trouble with this contract. Or it could be I agree to come to dad or I agree to come to my therapist. You know, you can fill that in. 
If I'm having trouble living by the contract, I will agree to engage in additional means of support through either increased counseling, attending meetings, attending alumni group, or return to sober living. If necessary, we will add to this contract to clarify these expectations. Okay? That's pretty clear. But it's also you have the buy-in because you have your child. This is their words. This is what they are agreeing to do. And you have it in writing, which makes things easier. Because when we do this and we just make a verbal contract, then there's interpretation. There's no... That we've got this. It's in black and white. There is no interpretation of this. It's very clear. Okay? And that's why we want to be very specific. Um, I'll be an active member in this family, as evidenced by and not limited to daily communication, sharing the load of the household chores, not charts, um, sharing the care of the animals, uh, carving out quality time with my family, mom, dad, my siblings, where I am present and actively participating. So that means that this is not present in those times. That, whoa, that is not on. The phone is not on. Game Boy is not on. Video games, all of that. It's just me and you, okay, having quality time, whether we're out walking, whether we're playing a board game, but we're interacting, and I don't have any of those other distractions, okay? If I either find... The expectations of this too difficult, I agree to address in our weekly family meeting, and we will address specifics in this agreement for clarity and better communication. So a weekly family meeting is really helpful, especially when you've got someone that's transitioning, whether they're transitioning back home, they have just returned home. Having that family meeting so that you have time to sit and talk about what's going on. Because a lot of times now, we're not eating dinners together as a family. We've got people with their sporting events, people with work hours that are all over the place. People are eating at different times, so we're, we want to make sure that we're carving out a time to sit down together with no distractions and really catch up and, and see where things are. Okay, Seated, not standing. I always say seated because I don't see many people arguing seated. When you argue and you've... You, you, you rise up. Think about it. You rise up, and then you start moving. And you start moving towards people, and then you are invading their personal space. Get seated. Find the most comfortable area in your home, the most comfortable chairs. Don't have the TV on. You know, maybe have some coffee or water or whatever. But let's remove as much distractions and really reconnect and, and check in with everybody. Okay. Um, other agreements on here is I agree to attend AA meetings, work with my sponsor, continue individual therapy with my therapist. I will agree to attend 30 meetings in a month, 90 and 90. I will update meeting attendance once I have achieved 90 and 90. So that would, might be another area that they're willing to do. It doesn't have to be AA meetings. Okay. So there are other meetings out there. There are SMART meetings. There are Recovery Dharma meetings. There are Celebrate Recovery meetings. Any of them are great. I don't care which one you go to, just go to one of them. Or go to all of them, whatever floats your boat. Okay? They all have a different flavor to them, um, but recovery is the main concept for all of them. 
If I have concerns about how my family is participating in our family agreement, I will respectfully address this in our weekly family meetings. Okay. That adds that ability, that added accountability for all members of the family. You know, it's not just me and mom that have to follow this contract. It's me and mom and dad and Joe. You know, everyone has to follow this, okay? Because I think that that's the hardest when you've got another sibling in the house, another child, who's doing stuff similar, but yet their behavior has not gotten to the point where this person's behavior is, and it's being allowed. Well, they're just smoking a little weed. They, they, they smoke in their room. It's okay. No, it's not. All right? So making sure that everyone's on board with what this family agreement looks like. And then this part is for the parents. Yes, you guys have a part in this too. So you agree to move the wine refrigerator to the basement and lock it and maintain the key. A lot of families have wine refrigerators, wine cellars, bars, all that kind of stuff. Be willing to lock it up, you know. Be willing to make that a safe place, yes. So, if someone, a young adult, Mm -hmm. is in early recovery, Mm -hmm. and it may take, depending on their drug of choice, a year plus for it to go through their system, before they are of reasonable mind to get into a contract like this, I can see someone just, eh, you know, I'll sign it and move on because it's, it, in the way I see it, you know, and we did try a contract mm-hmm. like this and we ended up throwing it away. Um, for someone that is not of clear mind, I see something like this as being convoluted and too much legalese for them to buy into it. And that's where you would simplify it and make it much more simpler than what I have up here. And I get it. I mean, this is strictly a template mm-hmm. to get people thinking in a particular right. direction. Because um, we ended up just having a one-liner, you know, our house is a clean house, take it or leave it kind of thing. But we also had at the time, they weren't including, it was our agreement and Paul read it and agreed to it. It wasn't, he didn't have input to it right. at the time. A number of years ago, they I think it's important that everyone has input. Everyone needs to have a voice. Again, it needs to be reasonable. And it doesn't have to have all of the things that I'm pointing out. These are just examples of what you could possibly put on there. You know, you don't bring any substances into the house. You don't bring people over to the house that are using. You, you, you guys create that, and you think about what is going to be appropriate in that time. That's why it's a fluid document, because as they get better, 
then things should be added to and taken away, taken out. The other piece with family agreements, a lot of times in the past, there was nothing that the family was willing to do. It was, this is what you will do in order to come here. But this is where we're working together, which is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes? I think you have to realize, too, when you're first in recovery, that all sides are scared. Yeah. All sides are scared. All sides are timid. They don't know what to say. They're on guard. And, you know, I think we're trying to work through that right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, when I said in the very beginning, the concern is if I set these boundaries, this will happen. They will relapse. They will leave. They will never talk to me again. Those kinds of things. You have to, you know, they may not, they may walk away for a while, okay, and then come back later. But you have to be willing to set those boundaries if that's what you need for you to feel safe, okay? And that's the key for us to feel safe. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, we've dealt with so many families in our support group that I think this would be good for the kids want to come home for the holidays. Mm-hmm. And you have a brother and sister that may not want them to come home. Right. To have everybody be a part of that, making the decision, the prodigal or whatever may decide, well, yep. I'm not coming home then. But that's okay. Yeah. I think, I think it'd be good to have everybody kind of involved in that and say, this is how we feel about it. Right. And that's where the flexible boundaries come in place, and that's why when I say family agreement, it's not just an agreement for this particular person. It's an agreement that the whole family is willing to engage in. You know, on here, I've only got you know what the child and the parent, but there you would add the siblings, and so there, that's why you all have a family meeting to discuss. This is what, you know, our expectations, if you were to come home, this is what our expectations are. What are your expectations? And these are the rules that need to be followed. Are you, you know, and if they choose not to, they choose not to, and that's okay. But you have to have clear boundaries. Don't violate your boundaries just so that they will come home, okay? When you violate your boundaries that make you feel safe, your home is your castle. That is where you should feel safe. And if you violate your boundaries and feel unsafe just so that they will come back, what, what, do you, what precedent are you setting? That it's okay. And, I'll, I'll, you know, you give a person an inch, they take a mile, right? So we have to have very clear boundaries. And if they choose not to come to visit, then that, that is their choice. But you maintain open and honest communication with them. It sometimes can take years for that relationship to heal, for them to be able to come back and talk about how they feel and what they need. You have to give them that time. Just as I tell our patients, you have to give your family time. Because you're the one that's in treatment six hours a day and you were in residential treatment. Your parents haven't been. Your spouse hasn't been. Let them have the opportunity to catch up and deal with what's been going on because you guys have had your own journey. You've been through your own trauma. and You need to deal with that and figure out how you need to feel safe. Okay? Honor that. 
it's really important that you honor that. It's not just about, I have to make room for them. You have to protect yourself too. Okay? And that's why sometimes people aren't allowed back in the home. That's why sometimes you lock stuff up. And they may say, well, you know, I'm, I've gotten seven months sober. I don't understand why you're locking this up. That's what you need to do to feel safe, and that's what you do. The, key, the car keys aren't laid out. The car keys aren't laid out because that's what you do to feel safe, and that's okay. And it's okay to put it that way. This is what I'm doing to feel safe. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Because if you can't do it, right. it's, it's, it's not good. Yeah. And, uh, and, and my experience is setting some boundaries leaves me sleepless nights. It hurts me. Mm-hmm. You know? And also seeing where these contracts are broken, not adhered to. And if you're not willing to enforce what you said, the consequences are, it's pretty worthless. Yeah. And and I get not wanting to have, especially if your child is younger, not wanting them to, to leave. And so there is the, I'll, I'll break this rule so that they stay. And I recently had a parent who said, I, I, I got up every hour to go check to make sure they were still breathing. You cannot sustain that. You cannot continue to do that. How are you going to be able to get up in the morning and go to work? How are you going to be able to take care of yourself? I mean, you got to think about those things, okay? It's really important that your yourself is included in this, that you're looking at how you are taking care of yourself, how you're taking care of your family. So you want to look at what you're willing to do. You know, and there's lots of examples on here. You know, we agree to uphold our personal boundaries, which are maintaining curfews expressing concerns directly rather than talking to other family members first. So if I have a concern about you, I'm not going to talk to your sister about it. I'm going to talk to you, and we're going to sit down and talk about it. We're not going to talk about it behind your back, okay? Go to a meeting. Find out. Learn about what that's like. Go to Al-Anon or any other family support group that you really like to go to. Um... Providing feedback in a calm, supportive manner, and that should be reciprocated. You don't make these kind of agreements when you're upset, just like if you don't go to the grocery store when you're hungry, okay? We all know what happens when we go to the grocery store hungry, and you went in there for chicken. Come home with chocolate glaze. Right. Or a box of pies. There you go. So you want to... Sit down and be rational and be in a calm manner when you're doing this and really think about the impact that this is going to have. And I like this one. I agree to engage in self-care activities at a minimum of once a week. Y'all, self-care is not just for the person who's in treatment. Self-care is for everybody. And I'm not talking about self-care, going to get your nails done or getting a massage. That is not self-care. That is 
That's upper level. That's echelon, upper level self-care. That's, woo, that's the icing, okay? I'm talking about making sure you get enough sleep, making sure you're eating, you know, eating good, nutritious foods, having your breakfast, lunch, dinner, having your appropriate snacks, whatever diet you're doing. Um, exercise, that you're socializing, that you're getting out and having fun, okay? Making sure that you're doing all of those things because if your whole world is centered around, I gotta make sure that this, my son or my daughter is safe, where is your life? Okay, you need to take some time for yourselves. Yeah. So, and you know, that's, there's a lot of work that's going to have to be done, but the boundaries are going to have to be in place. And the thing is, in the end, even if the kids, you know, when the kids get better and they go off, it's the two of you. At the end of the day, you sit across from each other at that table. You have to take care of your, your, your relationship. You have to take care of yourself. Okay? So don't neglect that. Self-care is also seeing a therapist. You know, there's no shame in seeing any therapist. I mean, and nowadays you can do it from the comfort of your living room. The telehealth, it's, you work with anybody, okay? So don't neglect that. Make sure that you're getting the support that you need and make sure that you're having fun and enjoying your lives. Make sure that you incorporate that. Are you gonna have fun every moment of the day? No. But find something, you know, for five, ten minutes that really sparks for you, okay? You know, one of the things I like to do for myself, and, and Fair and John know this, I mean, I get exhausted. I, you know, I do assessments. We, I, I'm working in an outpatient program, so it's a lot emotionally. I can't wait till Saturday morning because by 8 a.m., I'm on the road. My kayak is already loaded in the car and I'm on the water. And that's where I can feel serenity and peace for however long I'm on that water. Even if it's for 15 minutes and then a storm, that's okay. I had that, that time. And me, that's, that's my safe space. That's where no one can bother me. I don't answer my phone. All I use my phone for is taking beautiful pictures and videos. And that's it. And I enjoy my time. So. When you talked about your kids calling, this is when you can call. Usually you can set up times with 
especially if they're in residential treatment, you can set up times. These are the times that you can call and set that boundary. And, yeah, they're only going to talk about the good things. They're, they're only going to talk about the bad things when they want you to come get them. And then this is what we do, you know, looking at as a family. This is what we've agreed upon to support each other. As parents, we agree to talk with each other privately about any disagreements we have regarding parenting. So if the kid is younger, don't discuss, you know, I don't like the way that you parented such and such. Or don't do that in front of them. Do that in your bedroom. Do that when they're not there. Because then you're pit, you, they can pit one against the other. Okay. Make sure that you're doing that. It, it's, it's, it also demoralizes the other parent. Um, agree to have family week, weekly meetings, you know, and identify the date, the time, and where you're going to be having them. And then again, no distractions, no TVs, phones, computers, electronic devices. Look at each other when you're talking. When you're making this agreement, don't be looking over here, be looking on your phone. Make eye contact. When you're having the family meetings, have eye contact. Really look into their eyes, okay? That is how you connect. And we lost a lot of that in 2020 and 2021 when we had to do everything on Zoom. I mean, I was running groups, and especially my alumni group, which had like 25 people. I normally love, I love to connect with all of them. But on Zoom, it was... I just couldn't feel it. And it's so wonderful to have everyone back in person. Zoom is great when you need it, but having that visual contact, you feel their energy and they feel yours, and it really does connect you. Address the concerns in a calm, supportive manner. If you need to, if you're getting upset, triggered, you, I, need to, I need a moment. Go outside, take a walk, breathe whatever you need to do to decompress. If you need to go for a run, you need to go do some jumping jacks, whatever you need to do, bring it down, okay? You don't need to go into this. If you're just coming home from work and you're exhausted, you need to wait a moment before you go in there. Make sure you have something to eat. You don't want to be hangry, okay? Halt is a real thing for all of us. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. It's not a good combination, okay? Um, verbalize if you do not feel that you're being heard. Easiest way is, what did I just say? Can you tell me, repeat back to me what I just said? I want to make sure you heard me. Okay? Not in a condescending way. Did you hear me? No. But ask them to make sure because sometimes we hear different things. And then we make judgments based on that. Um, and just really communicate in a respectful manner. Stay on topic. Don't bring in stuff from five years ago. Don't bring in stuff from two months ago. Let's just stay on topic with what we need to talk about. If there's urgent needs, don't wait for the family meeting. And if anyone is feeling overwhelmed, like I said, everyone has the ability to stand up and walk out and come back. But that's part of what we know We've made this agreement that it's okay for someone to say, I need a minute, and to walk out, and they're, they're going to come back when they're ready. Okay? Usually they'll set a time. I'll be back in like 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. Just give me some time to kind of...
kind of relax for a minute. And then the last part here is consequences positive. Have continued extended time at home with overnight stays, unsupervised time with sober friends, access to a car. Again, these, you know, start with one, then you add the next as they progress, okay? But as a family, you figure what that figure out what that's going to look like. But you don't see on here purchasing them any cars or homes. Please don't do that. It doesn't help. Um, and then negative. Identify what the negative consequences are going to be. It could be an emergency family session. It could be calling defects. It could be that you can't stay in the home anymore. But again, you have to be willing to follow through with what the consequences are. Increase communication skills this, you know, so that we all feel heard and supported, identifying milestones. So a lot of times I hear, well, you can come back when I feel ready. What does that mean? I don't, yeah, I, I, you need to give some, the person a milestone. What does ready look like? What is it, what are some things that that person needs to do that will demonstrate for you that they are, have made progress and that you feel ready? Okay, because that is really ambiguous. I'll let you know when I'm ready. That could be months. It could be years. It, it could be next week. I don't know. But give them some milestones, some things to work towards. We all do well when we have things to work towards at Carrot. Um, and then strategizing a plan for them to return home full time if that's the goal. Okay. And then review this, the, the, you know, review the, the um, family agreement each month. Do we need to make some changes? Do we need to take some, you know, do some revisions, add some things, take some things out? Okay. And then everyone signs it. So it doesn't have to be as complex as this one. This one I added a lot in because they were further along and there was a lot that needed to be very clear and concise for this particular family, okay? So it's going to be very simple to begin with, and then you're going to add to it. But you want to make sure you have your non-negotiables, okay? Do you all understand what I'm talking about with non-negotiables? For me in treatment, a non-negotiable is if you vandalize our property, if you bring substances into the property, if you have intimate and or sexual relationships with another patient, I have to discharge you. Do I discharge you if you relapse? No, not necessarily. But this is what's going to happen, and I make that very clear to them when I admit them. These are going to be the things that we're going to look at if that was to happen. So that's what you want to have in your agreement. It's going to be stage-wise and it should fit what has happened, okay? Any questions? No, just taking this all in, okay. How, how much input would the child have in something like this? Should be 50-50. But again, everyone has to agree on it. Mm -hmm. So if it's not agreed upon, then it doesn't go in. Everybody has to have ownership. Correct. Because the other piece is, is I want you to have internal motivation to follow it. So just like when 
court sends someone away to treatment, the motivation for them to get better is not internal. The motivation is I, I need to follow this so that I can get off probation or I don't have a sentence and then that's it. It has nothing to do with me. Once I'm done with that and I've satisfied the requirements, I can do whatever I want. You want to have internal motivation, you want to have buy-in. So there has, there has to be something in there for them and they have to be a part of it. Just like when you write a treatment plan. I'm, I can't write a treatment plan for your health without your input because it means nothing to you. You have to tell me what it is that you want to do, what you're willing to do. And then as a medical professional, then we would work back and forth and figure out where can we compromise, where can we not. It's like receiving a letter from uh, your credit card company saying, oh, by the way, it's now going to be 20.27% and you have to make payments every two weeks instead. That's a unilateral thing and all it does is make me angry. Right? So I think the buy-in will be much higher if you try to do that. Mm -hmm. And um, the thing that I'm thinking of is uh, trying to figure out the triggers. What is it that for our son? What is it that makes him react and, and go off and do things that some things that are in his life? And what is it at, at home that he comes and brings that stuff here that when he's all agitated when he's with us? It's not the environment that we have when we grow up. So maybe it's asking them. Absolutely. What is it that you know so that we can have things on our side? Right. And with that buy-in, I think the likelihood is greater, much greater, that this is something that we can And I think also some 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 warning signs uh, might be good to build mm -hmm. as well. If you see me doing something that's bothering you, you know, raise the flag right. and say, you know, offside. Right. That's where the open communication comes in before you even create anything like this, is that I don't trust you. Be honest. You don't trust. That's okay. Acknowledge that. I don't trust you. I want to trust you. And so these are the things for me that I need to see happen so that I can trust you. And then asking them, well, what do you need from me for support? 
okay? Including them in that. And, and the other pieces you were talking about in terms of triggers and behaviors and all that, those are all things that I would put in a relapse prevention plan. And I, I don't like doing a relapse prevention plan with just the patient and then it just gets put away. It needs to be the family is involved. They know these are the warning signs, these are the triggers, these are behaviors to look for. And this is what I am willing to do if I engage in these kinds of behaviors. I would have all of that on a relapse prevention plan. But acknowledge that you don't trust. Don't lie about it. Just acknowledge it. It may hurt their feelings, but they're, they're going to be all right. Okay? We tell them, I promise you, the treatment providers have told them this, but it doesn't mean much unless you say it, that I don't trust you. And I want to trust you, but it's going to take time. And the only way that I can begin to trust you is when your behavior is consistent. And when you say you're going to do something, you actually do it. When you say you're going to be somewhere, you're actually there. When, you know, you're going to do something, you, you, know, you follow through. Don't lie to my face because it doesn't help me. You know, I have patients lie to me too. You're not hurting me. I'm going to go home and I'm going to be okay. You're hurting yourself. So what do we need to do so that you can feel safe enough to be honest with me? Okay. Does it make sense to separate the addiction from the person? And instead of saying you, you know, I don't trust the addiction. And versus the person. You can, but the, the thing is, it's they have a disease. And if I separate it out too far, well, then that gives me leeway. It, it's not me, Dad. Right. That, that was my addiction. Right. So I have to take accountability that I have this, just as I have to take accountability if I had diabetes and I have to do certain things and change my diet and watch my glucose and all those things, I have to take accountability for that. So I don't want to separate it out so that, it's, that they, there is no accountability there. But you don't trust them. Sure. And that, that, that is okay to say. Please know it is okay to say that. And, it, and they may not trust you. And that is okay for them to say that. All right? Be open and honest and be willing to hear some feedback that you may not want to hear as they are going to hear feedback that they may not want to hear. I was going to say, when you're sharing that feedback and when you're saying, asking about triggers, what triggers them from us, mm-hmm. and they're telling us honestly what happened, don't defend your stand on it because then they're going to be right back in the same place of not wanting to trust you because they think you're trying to manipulate them just like they do to us. Right. And you may find that the way that you have searched their room or the way that you have talked to them or the way that you dismiss them makes them feel a certain way. And it's important for you to know that. So how can I communicate with you? Let's talk about communication together. Because you want to know how you can support them and what that looks like from them and I want them to ask the same questions of you how can they support you and what does that look like 
Because even for a married couple, what support looks like to you is going to be different from what support looks like to your wife. So you should know what support looks like to her, not by you guessing, but by you asking. And vice versa. And you do the same with your family and the kids. What does support look like? What can you do? Okay? Because sometimes it's you don't look at me in the eye when you talk to me. I, I need that. You know, ask them what that means for them. Anything else? So I'm going to give you copies of both. I've got this and a sample one that is really simplified. There's not even anything written on it. You can find any of this stuff online. But I think it's just helpful to have something in writing so that everyone participates and you can return to that and say, but this is what we agreed upon. And if they've been in treatment, they're aware of a treatment plan. They've seen it. They've all seen treatment plans. They've all seen behavioral contracts. So this is no different. But this is where they, you know, just like in the treatment plan or behavior contract, they have a part in this. Okay? And I know it's hard, and you would like them to go to treatment and come back and be fixed. We can't do that. I'm sorry. Um, there's no magic session. There's no magic pill. There's, there's nothing that's going to... It's a journey, and it's behavioral change. It's a mindset change. It's a whole living environment change for them. And it takes time. And, and some people get well faster, and some people take longer. And some people are going to struggle for a while. I can't predict. But at least if they have an internal motivation, you have a better chance. Okay? Any questions? Thoughts? Comments? Okay. Thank you all.